This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow and this is the Goop Podcast where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. Today's guest is Rachel Cargill. Rachel is an activist, entrepreneur, and author of the new book, A Renaissance of Our Own, a memoir and manifesto on reimagining. I've admired Rachel's work as a public thinker for a really long time. And I was so thrilled to finally get a chance to speak with her. In her book, Rachel explores the ways in which we're capable of profound transformation on a personal level, in our communities, and beyond. Today, Rachel shares her personal story of self-discovery and how it changed the course of her life. We talked about the power of rest, what it means to be in alignment with our values, and how to embrace and deepen the relationship to our bodies. I love the way Rachel contextualized self-care and how being our best self is our highest service. Okay, let's cut to my chat with Rachel Cargill. I just want to say that we're so excited about this book. It's so special and it's so unique, the book, also because there's so much generosity in how you write and tell stories in these kind of moments of pause in between. It reminds me of preacher when they're like, do you hear me now? You actually create that space with a page of being like, okay, now do you fidget? Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? But you're doing that with like three pages in between saying like, let me teach you how to heal and move in ways that have helped me. It's so beautiful. Thank Thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. Something I've talked about a lot, this idea of continuing the dream work of those who came before us. 
And there's this part of your book where you say, well, my mother had done her best to rescue me from the world she'd grown up in. She didn't know how to launch me beyond our home. And I find that that is kind of an activist origin story a lot of the time, which is that there is this admirable, beautiful person and this ability for us to recognize that they did the best they can, but our dreams are often limited to our experiences. Our elders were able to offer us an experience beyond their lives. Then, then we're also offered this ability to dream beyond their lives or their, their home, as you put it. Can you talk to me a little bit about your childhood and kind of where that comes from in the book? Yeah, I grew up in a very specific or I should say particular situation. And it was the fact that my mother had found government housing in the middle of a very rich neighborhood. And I think she was very specific with that one because it put us in a quote unquote better school system, which what my mom understood as a better school system was a wider school system. I don't know if she had any more critical thinking besides, okay, I'm placing my child in proximity to whiteness, which might give her more opportunity, which I understand how that would have been a truth for her. But also it really, for me and from my perspective, it offered me a daily opportunity to be in relationship with what wasn't known to me in my own household. Mm -hmm. So everything from how my friends who were in much better socioeconomic positions, who were in families that had a lot more space to be perhaps a particular softness that my mother couldn't because she was raising Mm -hmm. so many children and trying to survive from day to day. And growing up, being able to witness these things gave me permission to start being curious about what else was possible outside of what I saw, whether it was just within my household or within, you know, my family's understanding of what success was. And I ended up being a very curious child. In the book, I talk about a memory of being at a party with my soccer team and being amazed at the house that they lived in. Like our house could fit into their house probably twice. And instead of being outside and playing with my teammates, I was sitting at the kitchen counter asking the wife of the soccer coach and saying, what do people have to do to get houses like this? Because that was never a conversation in my house. My house was always, here's how we get through day to day, paycheck to to paycheck, survival. And in these other spaces, there seemed to be a thriving that my family didn't seem to have access to. But what I did know is that my mom and my family was just as kind, just as smart, just as capable. So I knew there was something that I needed to understand that would get me from one place to another. And so my childhood ended up being this really intriguing space of being curious about what was possible in the world because it felt possible for me because I was in such proximity. But for some reason, my mother wasn't able to tap into what other people seemed to be able to tap into. And I was very intrigued and very moved to be curious about what it meant for me as a little Black girl in the world and how I knew I would prefer to exist. Well, it's really interesting because you're kind of saying that there was a part of you that even as a child, without even probably knowing these words to call it this, you're recognizing a systemic problem, that there's a problem or a difference in in system. Something I often talk about is that we can be really honest with kids because they are, they really 
feel already the the rightness and the wrongness or the thing that's like funky in the room. And so it's really interesting that you've kind of written this book about reimagining different systems and it and it kind of begins with reimagining your life. Yeah, in writing this book and being who I am now with having done so much study about different systems and having so much experience in those systems, I see how that younger version of myself was like, wait, this isn't adding up. There are many things that aren't adding up here. And I'm grateful that I might've had the space to ask questions or even had other people outside of my own mother, who was my primary caregiver to you know, be asking the soccer coach, be asking my teachers these questions that my mother might not have had answers to, but I can bring back to the home and be like, guess what I found out? Here are some connections. I remember I didn't even know what the different, you know, levels of college were until I was pretty much a senior in high school. I had a friend's parent explain to me what freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, PhD, masters, like I didn't even understand any of that. And I remember coming home and being like, mom, I have some information that is giving me access to something new. And I, I'm grateful that she often tended to that curiosity because it it both told me that I was worthy of new things and things that were giving me information, but she never, you know, I never felt shame about who I actually was and where I came from either. I want to offer my condolences because I know that your mother passed late last year. Could you talk to me a little bit about her? I feel like this has been the mother podcast. I I feel like I I, I only have had one person on so far who has not talked about their mother, but can you talk to me a little bit about how she was able to foster that curiosity? Is it it just by giving you space or did she kind of add questions to your questions for you to further question? Could you talk to me a little bit about, about her? Yeah, you know, my mother, she contracted polio when she was five years old. So she walked on crutches her entire life. And I only knew a mother with a disability. I was born to a mother with a disability. She grew up fairly poor, black in the Midwest here in Ohio. And I think that my mom had a lot of limitations that she knew she wouldn't necessarily be able to surmount in this lifetime for whatever reason, whether it was because she had already started having children and she wouldn't really have the room to do things or what her actual physical disability wouldn't allow her to surmount. And so my mom would often say, particularly I played soccer a lot as a child. And so, you know, soccer is a lot of running. And right before a game, my mom would be like, Rachel, you know, I can't run. So go run for me. And that is certainly a metaphor for the way that my mom encouraged me to run throughout various aspects of life, knowing what she hadn't been able to do. Mm. And so I think that she was also, you know, a fire in her was also stoked with my curiosity because she was just kind of sitting there with this hope that I might take these leaps and bounds that she wasn't able to for for multiple reasons. My mom was very artistic. She has, even now with her passing, as I go through her things. She had many sketchbooks. She would often talk about how she did get accepted into art school, but she just never got the chance to attend. My mom loved children more than anything. As soon as you pass 10 years old, she was like done with you. She taught many, many people how to read. There's many people walking around the world now who my mom certainly seeded their love for reading. Also, you know, I'm 34 years old and with her passing and the things that I'm realizing about her or learning about her, 
my mom was very complex and complicated in what she had to deal with in the world and what she decided to just sit with is true and truck through, you know, this life that wasn't always easy for her. My mom often says she loved to talk about how she was a flower child and how she often had a space of free thinking that her mother didn't always approve of. And as much as my mom might have been frustrated by my choices or my decisions, I think ultimately she was most proud that I was able to sit with a freedom that she both loved within herself and that she had intentionally seated in me and she got to see grow in many ways within me before she passed. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Remember once I was giving a talk and it was a talk about self-care and this person stood up and uh, she was like, you know, it's really hard for me to consider self-care because I never saw my mom sit down. Mm. She was like, I never saw her do a single Thing for herself. You know, she'd go to work all day and then she'd get home and she'd start cooking and ironing and cleaning and doing. And when that is not a part of how you grew up and, and it's, it's really hard to claim those things as necessity. And I feel that you touch on this and talk about this so much in the book and this idea that, you know, not making the entirety of your life a selfless gesture is actually a way that we are able to be deeply impactful with this, you know, kind of short, beautiful presence we we have while we're we're preciously here on earth. Could you talk to me a little bit about your journey and and kind of figuring out how to claim that when I I it's not role modeled? I'd love to hear kind of how you moved into claiming that, holding it, harnessing it, creating space for others to to do the same. Yeah. I often use the language that our best self is our highest service. I think that particularly Black women, women in general, particularly um, people of color, I'm thinking of immigrants, we've come to understand that self-sacrifice or like this deep martyrdom is the kindest thing we can do for our community. And I in my own work have found that when we actually take the time to nourish ourselves, when we take the time to find rest, that is where we have the strength to hold even more in our homes, in our circles, in our spaces. And thinking back to my mom in particular, I have so many memories of 
<laughs> my mom, like there were two things that come to mind. One, I definitely have days where my mom would say, Rachel, go outside. And she would literally lock the door and yeah, like, that's I it. would I not be able it. to come back inside until she, like whatever she was done doing, she was done doing. And sometimes I know that thing she was doing was like me meditating or yoga. My mom was like very into that, which wasn't really talked oh, about when we were younger. She would tell me about how she would go to yoga classes. And and that thing makes me think of my mom's relationship with her body and having a disability. And yoga was probably one of the ways that she really felt connected to her body in the midst of it. But also we would have these days where my mom would close all of the blinds in the house and she would just like be naked and walk around the house. And she would just be like, I don't know what y'all are gonna do, but like, I just need to feel free right now. Wow. And we, we would do a very, it would be a very normal day like we'd cook the meals and we'd watch tv and like nothing in special would happen but it would just be a day of like her wanting liberation to her freedom and feeling liberation and so I, i'm thinking about those two examples whether it was the harshness of her locking the door and telling me like i'll see you in an hour or the space where she invited us to be comfortable with our bodies and comfortable in seeing other bodies in a way that felt safe and normal it did give me the clue that we are worth whatever we might need in one moment mm. or another but as i got older as i got into my own grind whatever it was that i was doing in my own space of survival it just was like the plain truth that if I was too tired or if I was too depleted to show up in a way that actually showcased how much I really do care or how much I really am invested, it really wasn't worth what we were doing because we just weren't our best selves. Mm. And I this, this idea of our best selves, our highest service is a reminder that if we say we really want to serve, then the first place we have to do is serve within ourselves. And it behooves everyone else in our community to give us the space to do that. And so I hope we start considering ourselves as something that deserves being tended to, something that deserves being nourished, and not just this thing that we have to push out of the way to get other things done. Ourselves and our body are part of the equation as well. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Do you feel like that's kind of easier said than done? Because I know it must be a practice. You know, are there the kind of signs you look for in yourself? And so how do you kind of put that into your practice or notice those values around rest, restoration and our, and our best selves being able to serve? It's definitely easier said than done. I agree with that sentiment that it's easy to to insist and it's even easy to know with our with our rational mind what needs to be done, even if we do the exact opposite when we get into the emotional needs like demands or people mm -hmm. depending on us. Some of the tools that have been really helpful for me, one is really paying attention to my cycles. I think a lot of our lives are reactive, you know, something happens and then our nervous system kicks into gear and we show up and then that's kind of, we show up to a default and then that's when we're burnt out. And so one of the things that have been helpful 
and that I use is really paying attention to my cycle. Like I know that in the winter time, I live in New York City, I know in the winter time, once the weather shifts, my energy is going to be low. I'm not going to be as efficient as I would have been. So I kind of shift my work schedule around that or I shift my sleep schedule around that or I shift my social schedule around that. I don't expect myself to be the same in every season. Mm. And it is helpful for me to be thinking, you know, maybe two seasons ahead so I can say, you know what, let me get all my friends together for a few gatherings in the summer because I'm probably going to be a bit closed <sighs> off in the winter. I know that. Because so, I'm hibernating. Because yeah, <laughs> I'm hibernating. So really working with my own rhythms and paying attention to it allows me to be more proactive instead of doing the reactive thing, which can often be draining. The other thing, and the thing that I specifically talk about in the book is finding my highest values, deciding what I understand to be important to me and acting through that instead of exhausting myself and acting through what I'm told should be important. So, you know, my highest values are ease, abundance, and opportunity. And so if something is asked of me and it doesn't necessarily fit into my highest values, then that's an easy no for me because I'm probably not going to have the motivation to do it. And there's no reason to put my energy and all of my effort into something that doesn't even serve what's most important to me. And I can tell someone, oh, that sounds like it's really important to you, but it actually doesn't fit into what my idea of success is or what my idea of necessity is. And that has been really helpful because we, are often on what I'm calling this like life escalator, where we're just going up and up and up through these steps, what we're quote unquote supposed to be doing. And we really burn ourselves out from feeling like we have to keep up with something that isn't even taking us to where we wanna go. And so mm -hmm. what I have decided and what I'd rather do is step off of that escalator and start building this staircase of the things that I actually value, the things that I actually care about. That's taking me towards what my idea of success is, really taking time to discover what our idea of good and success and wellness is will allow us to put our energy towards the things that align with our values instead of using our energy to fit a mold that we can't even necessarily relate to. Do you think everyone should write a manifesto? I think everyone should, and I encourage people to. <laughs> and I think it's because clarity is kindness, particularly to ourselves. When we have clarity towards what we want to do and how we want to do it, it gets some of the static out of our mind that depletes us. It, it can be exhausting to be sitting there every day and say, am I doing the right thing? Am I making everybody happy? Am I not becoming a failure? When you have the clarity of actually, this is what I want to do, and I can be kind to myself on the way to there. And I can know that I'm surrounded by people with my solid yeses and my solid noes that are in alignment with my highest values, creating a manifesto and coming up with this language that we can use with ourselves and with other people is such a soft and kind way to move through the world instead of the, the hectic like hustle grinding yeah. culture. I mean, I, the thing about this current cultural phenomenon around the, the grind, which isn't current, it's gone on for a long time, but is there's not a lot of respect for your body in that. Mm -hmm. And in a world where we're trying to make our bodies respected so they can be safe and loved so that we can have beloved community in, in the midst of that safeness, 
this idea that we are like grinding ourselves down is in fact, the very harm we're asking people not to do just in in a different way to black bodies in this country. Yeah. The conversation of rest overall is something that's so needed. And I love that you put it directly to like our physical bodies and not just our mental health, which is absolutely important and a huge part of it, but also our physical bodies. We are taught that our bodies are something that are like in the way, something that we have to figure out. It's something that needs to be fixed or changed. It's never something that's just part of the living. And Mm -hmm. that's something that I want to change, like this relationship to our bodies, not being something we have to push out of the way or fix, but it's actually something that we can like tend to and maintain and nurture and, and appreciate and thank for all the ways that it's carried us through this life. Thank for the ways that the way that it heals over time. I'm always shocked after I get over a cold or the flu or something. And I'm like, wow, I really was down and out and I'm back. Like my body really had the ability to care for itself and tend to itself and come back into itself. And I, I hope that as we continue to move away from grind culture, which I do feel that we're even the language that we use and with the help certainly of Trisha's work at the NAP ministry, we're getting more language and more, more material to start having conversations with ourselves to what rest means and why it's not something that is kind of offered later on, but it's part of the ingredients for Mm -hmm. us to be able to not just be well, but to enjoy life. When we feel better seated in our bodies, we feel better in relationship to each other, even nature. I'm thinking like the ways that when I feel better in my body, walking through the streets and being able to be in nature feels more true feels feels more vibrant to me so yeah i i'm i certainly am working on it personally in the way that i'm building strength in my body i think about the way we always think that working out equals trying to look better but working out really is building strength building endurance building flexibility building just a relationship of knowing what your body can do i i'm i'm really enjoying this process of being in new new relationship with my own body. It's interesting and it and it's, makes me so happy that you're wanting to talk about that more because I think especially in this culture of I think we're harder and harsher on our bodies than we've ever been and and I don't know if it's I've I have a lot of friends who have had, you know, kids over the past couple of years and I'm like even just how hard people are and like their bodies as they're just healing after childbirth. It's so difficult. And it's definitely a side effect of how we're discussing the body in public. And I think the real cornerstone of this is that we often believe that our body is the holder of our worth. I really like to talk about the quote, our body holds weight, not worth. Even as children, when we watch the way that our mothers look at themselves in the mirror, when we watch the way that our, you know, our older siblings obsess over one thing or another, we we have learned that there's something about the way that our physical presence presents that tells us what we're worthy of. Mm. And I have a friend who I talk about in Renaissance, her name's Dana Sukow, and long ago she used to do a lot of work around the conversations we have with ourselves about our bodies and she encouraged us as we continue to kind of 
pick at ourselves and come to these conclusions about ourselves to ask who benefits from the way that I feel about my body? Like who's who's making money from it? Mm-hmm. Who feels better about themselves because of it? Particularly, she, she, she did this like project where she spent a whole year where she didn't shave anything on her body. And she was asking the question of who benefits from it. And the people who really benefited most was in the capitalist system who said, you know, you need to buy razors, you need to buy them off you need to buy all these products to make you feel better. So I really love this practice, as you said, these practices that allow us to be in better relationship with ourselves. This practice of when we really start to get critical about ourselves, asking, wait, who's benefiting from me thinking about it? Most times, it's certainly not us. It's only putting us into this downward spiral of our esteem, or even taking up our time, taking up our money, taking up our energy. You know, I think about all the time before I went on a date and I spent like an hour and a half shaving my entire body, the stress, the time, the energy. And it's like, who is benefiting from this? Because I can probably say there's probably negative experiences where anyone was ever like, please get away from me. You haven't shaved your legs. Like that's, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's just not true in the world. The, the it, We have been taught to believe that there are dire consequences for something when there really aren't. And we could get back so much more energy, so much more self-love, time and effort to be put towards anything else that might even nourish us instead of the ways that we really stress and unravel ourselves to fit into what we are told our body holds in terms of our worth. And they take the joy out, right? I mean, yeah. I Sana Lathan was on the pod last week and she had, I, I was joking with her. I was like, why are you so pretty? And <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm not sure how to ask this. Like, and I'm like, you just look amazing. Like, what are you? And she was like, she was like, you know, I enjoy adorning myself. Like it's ancestral for me. Like she's like, our people have always done that. And and she was like, and I do it for myself. It makes me feel happy to put on the beautiful lipstick or do the thing. And, and, and in that, it was such an amazing reminder that doing these things, because also, of course, part of why she is so striking and amazing is, is the energy and warmth and and beauty that she, her, her insides kind of project outward. And you're, you're reminded that it's like, you know what, if all of those things are for you, because you're like, oh, I love that. This is how I'm adorning myself. And and I see that a lot having a three-year-old who's going through like the princess dress phase. She <laughs> just wants to wear a princess dress and crowns yeah. and like all these things all the time. And, and it's so funny because you're always like, I'll make sure that my kids have equal like NASA t-shirts and this. And then you're just like, no, you're just like, you have a princess dress person or you don't like whichever, whatever gender your child might be like that. It just is in their DNA. (laughs) Like, because they are just like my, like Memphis has to put a princess dress on, like change to a different one every like three hours. It's (laughs) nuts. But you see that there's so much joy and she has no, she doesn't care about her hair or her, but she's she's like oh I'm having so much fun in this thing and 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 in that I find that there's such beauty in these kind of wearable arts of the world whether that's our dresses our lipsticks or our things if that's what you like 
I think that goes back to the conversation of your values, knowing your values. So if something isn't your value, but you're being sold that it is your value, you can be a bit critical and say, actually, this is exactly what I want to do because it relates. It takes me to exactly where I want to be, makes me feel the way I want to feel. And that is the beauty of knowing yourself, of being critical and kind of being self-aware and and curious about yourself and coming to these values to say actually this is exactly how i'd like to be spending my time regardless of what anyone's telling me or selling me and i i yeah i love that it really it really does fit into the importance and really the joy that comes from knowing your values and being able to sit squarely in them and i love that memphis has this princess value oh i will send you all (laughs) kinds of pics (laughs) You know, you've had this really transformational journey with your own values. I feel that I know your work so much as a public thinker without knowing as much of your backstory because so much of your work, I'd say for me as the reader, practice in presence because it's something that is so kind of poignantly speaking to something that is so important to the exact moment we're in at any given moment. And and I really thank you for that work. But I was not expecting when I got your book that when I was reading the very first page, it says, you know, Rachel shares her intimate journey from a small town Christian wife to outspoken feminist trailblazer. And I was like, wait, roll back the tape. For so many people who are looking probably for a transformation, talk to me about how, what it went on here and how do, how do we do this? Yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful that I have the book as an opportunity to be in conversation with my readers about a part of my life that I never really get to talk on social media or in more public spaces because most of my outward thinking and writing is really in the space of social justice or anti-racism in particular. And so this book was really an opportunity to let people know where I come from and what my journey is that even got me to this place of being so passionate about these topics and these spaces. And in the book, I tell the story of being married to a minister in a small town in Ohio. At what age? (laughs) At 19. (laughs) That's why I was like, what went on here? What went on here? (laughs) And so just just like a snippet of it that I met this guy in college and I was really looking for community and I found it in the church, which was most familiar to me because I grew up in the church. And so when he met me, he was very clear that I was the woman who was going to be his wife. And I thought he was fabulous too. I didn't have any feelings against him per se. He was a wonderful man. He's still a wonderful man. We still chat. I I went to his sister's wedding recently and we sat next to each other and really were able to catch up. But I think that my journey when I was younger and getting married, I, I really valued the structure that religion gives it was so wonderful to me because I was like, okay, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but this gives me some direction. And it was in that marriage, you know, I was married for three years and we were able to really grow together. I often say he was such a good man. He just wasn't a good man for me. And within that marriage, I had kind of the time and space to say, wait, what do I actually want? And how do I want to be in the world? And what really matters to me? And it's where I got even more critical to ask myself what's possible. I was like itching to know what else I was capable of. And I just wasn't able to find it in inside of that marriage because he still today lives in Ohio and living in 
much of the same way and he's so happy there and I'm so thrilled for him because it affirms that we made the correct choice in getting the divorce because he's doing exactly what he wanted to do and I was able to move and do exactly what I wanted to do which was see what I was capable of and move through the world. Being uh, that curious girl on the soccer team. Yes, yes, absolutely. Sometimes when we have the chance to launch, we get scared and would rather go into the space that's safe. Mm -hmm. And meeting him in college, college is all, many of our spaces of launch. And so I was kind of on this precipice of like, okay, Rachel, now you got to go and be whoever you think you're about to be. And I think I kind of cowered into the space of like, wait, 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 let me stay in this space of safety really quickly. And that's what I did with that marriage. And, you know, upon leaving that marriage, it was an identity crisis. But I, I'm, I'm so proud of that version of myself who was like, Rachel, you have a choice right now. And one thing that is very interesting to me is that I actually think I would have been a great wife. I think I would have been a great mother. I think he and I would have had a wonderful life. And I probably would have been a happy mother living a comfortable life. And I would have been fine. But also, I would have missed out on what was possible in who I became, what my work has been able to add to in the history of our fight towards liberation, my wonderful apartment in Brooklyn, you know, the friends that I have in many places. I think I would have been fine either way. I don't feel like I made a right decision, but I feel like I made the decision that that felt more true to me, that felt more expansive to me. And that's how I want to live. I want to live in this expansive, abundant way. I wonder if it's less of an identity crisis and it was more of this like identity shedding that yeah. is freaky. Yes. <laughs> that we have these rebirths in our lifetimes. Yes. Like we are like having these born again moments in, in the non kind of Christian sense all throughout our lives. And, and in that, when you are reborn, you're like a screaming baby and you're really fragile and you're really scared and you have to find really safe arms to kind of help you along for a while. And that kind of safety and comfort is really critical because you're not yet really able to walk and talk and express yourself fully. I've had certainly had that experience twice in my life and it's beautiful and it's really hard and it's really scary. And it is something we do try to kind of avoid at first because it's an upheaval. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's absolutely an upheaval. And as you said, we feel like these shaky babies who are like, mm. where will I fall? Who will catch me? How will I learn the language? And, but I'm grateful. I, I also, you know, I'm, I'm in deep relationship with my younger self, with that version of myself who had the courage to leave this space where I was celebrated as a wife and who had this trajectory that felt very safe. And, and moving into this version of myself, who I feel I'm very much so in perhaps a new, another rebirthing yeah. after this first book for sure, and understanding myself and what I want to do. But that also requires me being in a relationship with an older version of myself to say, mm -hmm. you know what, I know that you're watching me make these decisions that will directly affect how you get to live, how you get to rest, how you get to be in community, how you get to experience mm -hmm. the world. And I find that so sacred, this practice of being in relationship, of being grateful to and learning from the courage of my younger self. And I feel 
accountable to a version of me that's 70, that's 80, who's, who's, who's watching me right now. Like I can feel her eyes on me saying, I see you girl, either both encouraging me saying you're doing well. I see you trying. I see you making the effort mm -hmm. and also saying you got to do the work to get us to where we're, where we're trying to be. Yeah. I love the idea of a future self rooting for you because sometimes the person in the moment is incapable of doing that because you're overwhelmed with so much yes. going on that this idea that you can channel this future self is saying, don't worry, we end up okay. Get us here. You got this. Yeah. Keep going. And taking the time Make now fun. to do that to your younger self, like write a letter yeah. to your younger self and say, you're doing great. You're, you're trying. And just think that maybe some way, somehow that younger self felt it or sees it. And that's how they were able to get through. But I think, I think that's a practice of being in relationship with our younger and our older selves. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's conversation with Rachel Cargill. Her book, A Renaissance of Our Own, is out now. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Goop Podcast.